Good morning. You know, in every uh, serious uh, relationship, there comes a time or times when we are called or challenged to deeper levels of commitment. Now, the, the most obvious, I guess, um, example of this is marriage, when people are single and, and maybe dating, even engaged, but they get ready to make the commitment of marriage. But it happens in other relationships too, friendships and family relationships. It even happens, I would say to you, um, in our relationship um, with our work, you know, whether we're a professional of a kind or raising children or whatever it is that we do. If you see your work as a calling, I remember when I got the phone call for this uh, job after it was the final phone call, you know, after I had interviewed for some months here. And when I got that phone call, I was in a SUV with four of my friends on a ski trip in um, Colorado. And I said, thank you. I was very um, honored and, and grateful for the, for the invitation. And I said, can I take a couple of days to pray about it? They said, sure, of course. Hung up the telephone. And, um, but you know, I knew in that moment, I can still remember that day, that if I were to say yes to that opportunity, which I did, that I would be saying goodbye in a manner of speaking to those four friends in that, in, in that uh, car, and goodbye to a life and a job that I really uh, had loved. I wasn't leaving in something that I, I didn't like at that time. But also, I was excited about the opportunity, and I felt that God was indeed calling me into this role here at Browncroft. But when I thought about it, as I did think about it, I knew that you know, there was a big difference between being an associate pastor at a large church in Texas and being a senior pastor here uh, in my hometown. And for me to say yes to that opportunity, I knew that um, things were going to have to change. I was going to have to change. Not just my zip code, uh, but my, my walk with God, even in some ways my character. You know, our, our uh, mission statement here at Browncroft is inviting people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus, okay? We're all sort of signing on to that if you're a follower of Jesus through the ministry of this church. And the heart of it is life change, right? And the thing about life change is most of the life change that we experience as followers of Jesus, right? As, as, as Christ followers, most of it is gradual, right? We don't often have big changes overnight, right? It's often very gradual, which is why it's so important as a Christian to be involved in, in, in your walk as a Christ follower in community with other people. We've talked about that at, at different places over the last two months in, in the beginning of this year, right? Do you have people in your life who can affirm to you, who can see things in your life that you don't see because much of the growth as a follower of Jesus, as we try to experience greater purpose in our lives as Christ followers, happens gradually. But there are times, as believers, where God himself um, calls us to deeper levels of commitment in our faith, right? Kind of moments of truth and moments of, um, you know, uh, uh, of decision. 
And we are at one of those moments here in our study in the middle of the book of Matthew with Jesus and his disciples. You have a copy of the Bible. You can open up with me or turn on with me to where we left off last week here in Matthew chapter 16, verses um, 13 through 20. Matthew 16, 13 through 20, in a message titled, The Confession of Faith. The Confession of Faith. Follow along as I read. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, his disciples, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, that is another human being, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now, this passage, this, this conversation happens really near the end of Jesus' ministry. Okay? It's not the end of the gospel chapter number-wise, but we are actually closer to the end of Jesus' ministry. He has spent more, let's say the, a majority, close to three years with his disciples. But it's interesting to me, I think it should be interesting to us, that after, at least as far as we know, this is the only time that Jesus stops with his disciples, right? Been to them for a long time, been through a lot of um, um, ministry and, and, and life and miracles and challenges and all many of the stories that we know around the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus, the first time and the only time in the gospel, he turns to them and says, hey, guys, I want to ask you a question. What do you think of me, right? What's your opinion on me? What do you think about who I am, right? Beyond the miracles and beyond the teaching. And it's important for us as we consider what we can learn in this passage today um, uh, to give some, uh, a few minutes here on, on, the, on the geography of this passage. It's no accident that Jesus asks them this question, verse 13, in this place called Caesarea Philippi, which is a place, if you took out your Bible map, it's at the northernmost tip of the country of Israel, the nation of Israel. The more northernmost tip between where today, if you were there today, it's in what's called the Golan Heights, and you could look one way and see uh, Lebanon, one way and see Syria. But in Jesus' day, it was the border, you might say, between the nation of Israel and New Testament speak and the uttermost parts of the world. Okay, this is the northern tip. And even though it's Jewish territory, it's part of the nation of Israel, it's almost exclusively Gentiles. So Jesus, as far as we know, and his disciples never went to this place. This is the one and only time. Now, Caesarea Philippi was originally founded some hundreds of years earlier. We know this through history um, by Alexander the Great, who um, 
who, who, who found it as originally a place to worship the god of Pan, which was one of the Greek gods. And then hundreds of years later, the Herod the Great, you know, trying to outdo perhaps Alexander the Great, he builds a temple and, and, and worships there himself and makes it a place of worship. And then by the time you get to his son, um, Philip, who's Alexander, or excuse me, Herod's son, it becomes Caesarea Philippi. It's the name given by the time Jesus and his disciples are here. But the point I'm trying to make here is this. By the time Jesus Christ uh, is standing here with his disciples, it is the center of pagan worship in the ancient world, right? It's the center of pagan worship in the ancient world. And what you see, now today, it's, if you go there, it's kind of a tourist site. There's, there's ancient ruins. But if you go there today, you will see, or in Jesus' day, it would have been a series of temples that were there, right? There was a temple that Alexander the Great built that was to the god of Pan. There was a temple to Zeus. There was a temple to Nemesis. There was a temple to Caesar Augustus. And all these temples were there, and it was a place of great worship. In fact, behind the one big temple on the left of that screen called the Temple of Pan, there's a cave. It's still there today. And that cave has this long, deep stream that at least Alexander the Great had said was a stream. It was a bottomless stream that went all the way into the center of the earth. And it was called in those days the gates of Hades or the realm of the dead. So why here, right? Why would Jesus, the one time he's asking his disciples, what do you think about me? Why does he ask them here? It's a question for us as we read this passage. Why not ask them, you know, in Galilee or in the synagogue or maybe even in the temple courts, right? Why ask them here, you might say, in the marketplace of ideas, right, in the ancient world. Well, I think Jesus asks them this, not for his sake, right, but he asks them for their sake because it's important for them to know what it is that he really thinks. And Jesus says, listen, I want, you, I want to ask you an important question. This has everything to do with the purpose in your life. It has everything to do with whether or not you're going to be able to really live out the faith that I've called you to, right? We're just beginning here with the church of Jesus Christ. But I want to ask you this question, not in the safety of the church pew, not in the safety of the temple, not in some small, you know, we all agree community, but I want to ask you this in the backdrop of the marketplace, right? In the value system of the world where you live your lives, right? Where I live my life. No, nobody lives in church. We've been saying this throughout this series, if you've been here. You know, life on purpose, live on purpose, that it is our surroundings, right, where we work, where we live, you know, uh, the, the, the everyday traffic of our lives, our fears, our anxieties, our work environments, the value system of this world. It is our circumstances, our surroundings that, very, that often ha are more decisive in our growth than um, our Lord is, right? So we talk a good game, I talk a good game, but Jesus asks them this question here because he wants them to think about, who do you really think that I am? I don't want the safe answer, I want the real answer, right? 
Even as I think about my own life, you know. Who do you think that I am? Who is Jesus? You know, if, if, you, if I really want to know, if I want to be honest and say, what's, where is my faith today? How deep is my confession? It's how would I answer this question? How do you answer this question? Who is Jesus? Where you work, in your neighborhood, where you play basketball, where you go to school, on the sports field, at your country club, at the dinner party, right? See, it's how you answer the question there that's really an indication of the depth of your confession, not how you answer it here, right? That's what I think Jesus is saying. Perhaps how I answer that question in the Caesarea Philippi's of my life, right, is more a true indicator of the quality and the depth of my faith than anywhere else. The first question this passage asks us, maybe the main question I want you to leave with today is, is Jesus Christ the Lord of, your, of every area of your life, right? Is he the Lord of every area of your life? It's not, what's important is how you answer this question, how I answer this question. What you're doing at 10 o'clock tomorrow, set it on your phone. <laughs> at 2 o'clock tomorrow afternoon, set it on your phone. Uh, you know, at, at Friday night, wherever you spend your Friday and Saturday nights, right? Is Jesus Christ the Lord of every area of your life? When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, look at how Jesus does this. He's so thoughtful. Uh, and you might say he's crafty, but he's, he's not doing this. Jesus is never trying to get one up on anybody. How foolish. It's like a parent. Why would, you, would you want to get one up on your three-year-old? I mean, that, maybe some of you would. I don't know. But the point is, you, don't, you, you're try, you do everything you do with your three-year-old, you do it out of love. So Jesus is never trying to get a one-up on us. He's asking, he's leading, he's, he's doing what he's doing because he's trying to deepen our commitment. He's trying to deepen our maturity. He's trying to help us, just like a good parent, he's, except he's better than the best of parents, right? So he asks them two questions, really. The first question is really just a foil for the second one, right? I'm, I'm warming you up, right? You know, what do you think? What, what, what is the word on the street about me? That's what he says, right? You know, uh, what do people say about who the Son of Man is, which was a, a, a phrase Jesus used of himself in the gospel? What do people, what's the word on the street? And see, that's easy. But what they give here, if you, if you read verse 14, is kind of the safe answers. They're kind of the, 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 you might call them the Sunday school answers. Well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're Jeremiah. No one says you're, you know, Jack the Ripper, you know, right? I mean, what, you're, you're, you're Jeremiah. You're one of the prophets, okay? Well, at this point, you know, Jesus is not yet, you know, fully, they've not fully appreciated him as the, the son of God. I mean, Peter says it here. It's an amazing statement. But in other words, they're figuring this out. But th these are the safe answers. Now Jesus says, okay, now that that's out of the way, I want to know what you really think. But what, but what about you, he asked. What do you think? Now, Peter gives this um, really a beautiful answer, famous passage. And you could not give a more truer answer, right? I mean, uh, to, this, to, to this question. He's very clear. He's very direct. You are the Messiah. That's a, that's a, that's a loaded statement. He doesn't say you're special. You're a prophet even, Right? You are the Messiah. There's, only, there's many prophets. There's only one Messiah. You are the Messiah, the promised, the anointed one of God, the son of David is what he's saying in that word. The, and not only that, you are the son of the living God. Remember, the back, they're, they're behind all these dead gods in the sense of this 
panoply of you know, um, g- temples. You are the son of the living God, the one true God. Now, Jesus affirms this. This is, this is Peter's high watermark, actually. Goes a little lower later in the gospel, but this is his high watermark. This is the this is the story Peter tells. This is the if he were to write his obituary, he'd start here. You know, this was the high watermark for Peter. And Jesus commends him. Blessed are you, Simon. You got it right. But it's interesting that Jesus not only commends him, but he he also confirms Peter's source. Right? Peter didn't get to this great confession because of his study or because of his experience, right? He got there because of a revelation of God, the Father. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, it's a way of talking about human nature, but by my Father in heaven. Listen, only God, what is Jesus saying here? Listen carefully, we think about this confession about my life, your life. Only God the Holy uh, God in heaven and through the person of his Holy Spirit, the gospel of Jesus Christ, only God can open the eyes, I'm talking about spiritually, open the eyes of the blind. Only God can open my heart, open my mind. It's only through, the, through a supernatural work of the Spirit of God that my eyes are open, that I'm, the Bible uses these terms, born again. Okay, those of you who are familiar with that term. Only God can do that, okay? That's a miracle. And some of you, maybe many of you have had that experience in this room. But once that happens, for me it was a long time ago, 30 plus years ago. Once that happens, we, you, have to make this confession our own. Because it's this confession, right, built on who is Jesus for in your life. It's the fuel for the greater purpose in your life. That's what this passage is about. That's why we study the word of God. That's why we pray. That's why we fast to work this confession deeper into your lives so it can stand up, right? When I'm standing in front of my friends, right? When I'm in that dinner party, when I'm in that moment in my country club or on the sports field or in the cafeteria or wherever I live my life. Right? In the Caesarea Philippi's of my life. Now look at this. Oddly, verse 20. It's supposed to be odd, I think, if it, if it strikes you. Then, after this beautiful moment, blessed are you, Peter. You nailed it. You got it. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. All this great stuff, which includes the other disciples. Peter's the spokesman. The question was asked to all of them. Then, right, he suggested, no, he ordered his disciples not to tell anybody he was the Messiah. Wow, what is that about, right? Why would he do that? Now, some people would say, if you're a Bible student of the Bible, there are these times when Jesus heals people, many times in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where Jesus heals somebody. It's never the disciples. It's always some you know, other party, third party. He heals somebody, and then he says, now listen, don't tell anybody that I healed you. In all of those cases, in, in Bible speak, you know, commentator speak, we call that the messianic secret, if you're a, if you're a Bible study uh, student. And what he means by the messianic secret is Jesus did not want people, your average person on the street, to go and you know, broadcast to everybody and their brother that they had been healed by Jesus because it would draw attention and it might get Jesus in trouble and short-circuit his ministry. That's what we call the messianic secret. But that's not what's going on here. There's no miracle. There's no crowd. It's just Jesus and his 12 disciples. 
having this conversation. And this is not about his power. It's about his identity. But you ask yourself, why would Jesus say to his disciples, order them? This is an order. Do not tell anyone. You got the right answer. And I'm sure they all said amen to Jesus' affirmation. But I don't want you to tell anybody. Well, the reason why, think about your own life here, right? Not about Sunday morning, about Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Saturday night and Thursday night and wherever you're going to spend your week and I spend mine. Peter is saying far more than he knows. Just a few verses later, if this couldn't be more ironic and dramatic, okay, maybe this is the same afternoon. Jesus turned to Peter and said, right there in the same page of your Bible, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns, right? When, when Peter tries to get in between Jesus and the cross, Jesus, first time, as I said, the end, his ministry is almost over. Jesus says, okay, by the way, guys, I'm glad you know who I am. That's why I asked you this. I really want to know what you think. Because now I want to tell you something. I'm not on my way to some great throne in Jerusalem or in Rome. I'm on my way to a cross, Right? That's why I want, to, I want to know what you really think. And then Peter says, no way are you going to the cross. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. He says, get behind me, Satan. Now, he doesn't really think Peter is Satan. But he's saying, that's what's behind that kind of point of view. Because you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You had the right confession, but you really were, it's not very deep in your life. You're really just concerned about yourself. You're still at a place where you're following me because you think I'm going to help you accomplish what it is that you want to accomplish in your life. Hey? This is the importance of this moment. What Jesus is really asking them, what I'm asking myself, what I'm asking you is, listen, not do you know who he is. Is he Jesus the Christ? But when, do you know who he is? He's saying, am I the Lord of every area of your life? Am I the Lord of your ambitions? Right? Am I the Lord of your thought life? Am I the Lord of your family? Am I the Lord of your desires? Listen, am I the Lord of your, your, your money and your kids? That's what he's really asking. That's really what this means, okay? Is Jesus Christ the Lord of every area of your life? You want to live on purpose? It's got to start there. Because we don't live our lives in this beautiful room, right? We come here to get a, an encouraging word, a, a, a word from God. We live our lives out there in Caesarea Philippi, right? Second question, this passage, they go together. Is the church the center of your spiritual development? Is the church the center of your spiritual development? You know, this is the first and only time Another first and only. That Jesus Christ says the word church in the entire New Testament, in the Gospels, right? Now, isn't that what he came for? He did. But he only says it once. All this theology is teased out by Paul and Peter and James and Luke, right? This is the only time that Jesus talks about the church, the church that he, verse uh, 18, I will build my church. And in this one little small passage, he's not only talking about the church, but he talks about essentially what the nature of the church is. How is it that this thing called the church actually brings about life change? Right? It's all in this little passage. Now, 
Why is that? How do these two things, how does the confession of Jesus go with the church? Here's why. They go together. I'm quoting a famous writer from our day. The church is the product of the life that understands Jesus. See, this is what he's, he's taking this confession. He's saying the confession is everything. What you, how you answer this, who is Jesus? Is he the Lord of every area of your life? That's directly related to the church I'm gonna build because the church I'm gonna build, ask yourself if this is true of your relationship with this church, the church or any church, this church I'm gonna build is how that confession works its way into your life. Understand what I'm saying? It's all we're saying, if I'm hungry, I go to the grocery store. That's the only way I get my needs satisfied. How the confession, my confession, it, which is like Peter's, I believe Jesus is the son of God, how that is worked into every area. The church is the organization, right? As this writer said, the church is the product of the life that understands Jesus, right? That's what we're talking about. And what's described here in these very interesting verses, in simple terms, is the process of how that confession becomes central to our life. I'm looking at the clock now. Sadly, this passage... Some of you uh, get this or know this if you grew up like I did as a Roman Catholic. This great passage, the only time Jesus mentions the church in the entire New Testament, which should be important to us, is often has been filled with all kinds of historical confusion and people overlook it because it's become part of the basis of a historical debate on the, um, the succession of Peter and the Pope and the papacy and all that. Okay, now let me just say something. Can I solve a 2,000-year-old thing in 30 seconds for you here this morning? You know, uh, uh, This passage, it is about the importance and role of Peter, and there's uniqueness, but it says nothing about succession. That's something that's built on it, and that's a separate and interesting discussion. But what this passage does say to us, there is a special role for Peter, and then there's a special role for the church. What is the special role for Peter? Okay, this is a you know, a whole history class in, in, in 30 seconds. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. It's not that difficult. A key is a metaphor for access, right? I'll give you the key to my house. Peter uses that key, and what Peter does, no one else does. James, John, Rob, anybody. No one else does it but Peter. In this sense, it's unique. In Acts chapter 2, he turns the key. He gives the most amazing sermon that starts, really launches the church of Jesus Christ. If you look in, in around verse 19 or something in Acts 2, there are all these geographies from all over the known world come to Pentecost, which is what they do once a year. And, and all these people from, you know, they're Jewish, but they're from Crete and they're from Asia and they're from Rome and they're from all, all over the world. They come together and God uses that moment. Peter preaches this amazing gospel and 3,000 people from all over the world, Jewish, are saved. Key number one, Acts chapter eight. Peter, along with Philip, is sent to Samaria. Following Jesus' sort of outline, Judea, uh, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. This is the Great Commission. Peter goes to Samaria, and along with Philip, he turns key number two. Okay? And some people there become Christians. Acts chapter 10, Peter, the apostle, is called by uh, this great vision, if you remember the story, Acts chapter 10, and he has this vision of all these unclean and unclean animals, and God says, what God has made clean, don't call unclean, get into that house of that Roman soldier who's who's, who's not Jewish, and share the gospel, and the first Gentile person becomes a Christian. Boom. Three keys. What Peter does is he gives access 
to the gospel. That was his special role. But that overwhelms what happens in the next half of the verse. Verse 19b. Colon. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That is the sausage making of the church. <laughs> Bad metaphor. This is how, what happens once you get access into the church. It's binding and loosing. Let me turn over the page. This particular, how the power of God is released in the church, that's not Peter's job. That's everybody's job. In the middle of this discussion, it's actually about church discipline, but Jesus speaking again. I'm walking in the middle of it. Verse 18. It's just the next page over because Jesus is making a larger point about the church. Truly I tell you, now he's talking to the whole group, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Same language. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I truly tell, again, I truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything, right? This is the church of Jesus Christ. If the two or three of you agree about anything they ask for, it will be done by them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I will be with them. This is what the church is. This is the spiritual development of the church. Whether you're in a church of thousands or a church of hundreds or a church of 100, let me tell you how the church actually, how the confession of Jesus Christ actually is brought to bear in your life. It's binding and loosing. I think another, uh, uh, the great message uh, translation says this. A yes on earth is a yes in heaven, right? That's really what we're saying. When people get together, they take that confession of Jesus Christ, then they need to make it real, right? And I look at my friend Dave and I say, listen, you, this is what you need in your life. I'm gonna agree with you. And even though it's just you and me agreeing over this verse of scripture, a yes on earth is a yes in heaven and a no on earth is a no in heaven. See, this is what, the, this is what, this is what Jesus is saying. And that command is not, is, Peter shares it, so do the other 11, but it's given to the church of Jesus Christ. This is what the church is about. And if you want to really live your life on purpose as a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to start with the confession, right? You need to start with being born again. Only, one, only God can open your eyes and open your heart. But once he's done that, you've got to make that confession your own. And what's important is not what, how I answer that question here on this beautiful rug on this platform in this nice safe church thing. It's how I'm going to answer that tomorrow in in, in, in the gym or how I'm going to answer that at Wegmans or I'm going to answer that at a dinner party or I'm going to answer that at the, at, you know, wherever it is I do my life, right? And if I want to do that, I need to start binding and loosing. I need to start finding strength and releasing uh, a sin in my life and this is the work of the gospel. This is where this ends and we're going to take communion but where do you need strength or release in your life today? Right? Where do you need strength or release in your life today? Right? This is what we're talking about. When we celebrate communion, we're going to do that right now. We're done. It's a reminder of what's at the heart of our faith, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? His broken body his shed blood. It's simply a reminder, the bread and the wine. But what is it a reminder of? It's a reminder of the gospel. And it's the power of the gospel. We sang about it. 
That's the only thing that changes your life. It's the power of the gospel as God comes into my life and I say, God, listen, this is where I need strength. I need some binding. You know, what is, what is said in, on earth, God, give me your help. I claim this promise, so to speak. I need the power of the gospel. That's a binding. Or I need to find greater freedom in my life. Say, I, I, I'm here today and I'm a Christ follower, but I got a sin in my life that's just nagging me that keeps coming up in my life. I need a release. I need to be loosed from this um, besetting sin in my life, right? And I need to agree with others and brothers and sisters with me. And that not only happens in community, it happens right now as we take this table, right? So I just wanna challenge you. If you're a, if you're a Christian in this room, right? The, the, the Lord's table was given to the body of Christ, to people who have already made the confession, right? So if you were in this room and you said, there's a time in my life, it could have been last Sunday, it could have been 30 years ago, where you said, I trusted Jesus as my Savior, and I know, I don't live a perfect life, but I know my eyes were open. I know I've received the forgiveness of sin. I am a Christian, I'm a Christ follower. Even though it's not about what I have done, it's about what he has done for me, I'm in. Jesus is my Savior, but the question as we share in this table that I'd like you to ask you to think about is where is he yet to be the Lord of your life, right? Well, some say uh, John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, but what do you say, right? Where in your life today, right now in this moment, privately, would you say honestly, Rob, Jesus, he's my savior, but he's not the Lord of my thought life. He's not the Lord of my jet-set friend's life. He's not the Lord of my neighborhood life. He's not the Lord of, you know, um, my marriage. He's not, just being honest. He's not the Lord of uh, my pocketbook. That's off limits, okay? Where is he not the Lord of your life? Where do you need strength? What is bound on earth is bound in heaven, and where do you need greater freedom? Think about it. Bring that to mind and let this everyday environment, church service, what is a yes in heaven, a yes on earth is a yes in heaven. Amen? So we're going to pass this out. Let me say a, a, a prayer for us and then we'll take it together. Father, we thank you for these moments. I pray for everyone in this room as we, uh, as we just receive these elements and hold them in our hands before we take them. Lord, help us to use these minutes, maybe one, two, three minutes, to transact business with heaven. We want to be the church right here, right now. Help us to know where we need strength. We need a, a work of the gospel to bind the truth and make it more real in our hearts and to loose us and release us from sin or uh, to gain a greater freedom. Help us to bring that to mind right now as we prepare our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.